Our study today starts with this question. Are you ready? Have you ever neglected something before? All right. Have you ever neglected something before? We're going to talk a little bit about neglect today. And so just know uh, we've kind of moved through the toughest part of our story in 2 Samuel, uh, the awful situation with Amnon uh, and the assault of his sister Tamar, his half-sister Tamar. And then we moved on from there to, uh, uh, to uh, Absalom, Tamar's brother, uh, her full-blood brother, uh, plotting revenge uh, on Amnon. And we kind of get into this passage where David could have done something about it. But he's a bit neglectful uh, in his leadership as a father and also uh, as, a, uh, as a manager uh, and uh, administrator in the country. He is one who could have done something about it, uh, and he chose not to. And so we'll start a little bit low level first. Have you ever neglected something before? The easiest one is, you ever like left the iron on before? You had that situation before? Or some of you, the stove, you ever left the stove on before? That is frightening, isn't it? Again, just something you don't want to do. Uh, it makes you, feel, uh, makes you feel awful. Or have any of you ever left the bath water on before? Okay. Um, I have a really, really, uh, uh, could have been a tragic story about that. So back when we first moved to D.C., we're living in 100 Capitol Yards over here. Uh, in Navy Yard, and uh, it was a very special day. Wimbledon was on, uh, and that first year that we were here was the year that Sir Andy Murray was the first Englishman in forever to win Wimbledon. And so I'm not the, uh, I'm not the biggest tennis fan, but this was a big moment. And so I uh, didn't have kids in the bath or anything, but I had turned the bathwater on, walked by the TV, and it was the last set. Uh, I mean, it's just about to be match point for Andy Murray to be the first Englishman to win. And I mean, I think it was like something like 70 years. I mean, it was a long, long time, 50, 70 years, something like that. And so I remember uh, the last set or the last little uh, match point takes forever sometimes in tennis. And so I remember I'm watching and it takes about 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden we hear kind of this, I mean, just this kind of blob noise. And all of a sudden I realize it's the overflow drain stopping the entire apartment complex from being flooded. And so I run to the back area, turn off the water and Autumn goes, who did this? Did one of the children leave the water on? And I said, yes, one of the children clearly left the water on. No, I didn't. I didn't lie. That as yeah, it was me. And she was like, uh, you don't even like tennis and you almost flooded our apartment. And I said, you know, that was probably a bad move. All right. That was neglectful. All right. Now let's look real quick at first Timothy chapter four. Paul's going to talk specifically to Timothy about neglect. And uh, uh, for those who are shepherds, um, how we, uh, how we should handle this. So look at what it says real quick. You ready? Verse first uh, Timothy four, verse 13. Paul says, until I come, devote, yourselves, uh, devote yourself to the public teaching, the public reading of scripture and preaching and to teaching. Look at this. Do not neglect your gift. Underline, do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands upon you. Now stop right there for just a minute. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul will say, Timothy, do not neglect your gift that was given to you through the laying on of my hands. And so it's so interesting. The difference between 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 1, in one setting he says, don't neglect the gift that was given to you through the laying on of my hands. And then here he says specifically the gift given to you through the laying of the elders' hands. The laying on of Paul's hands is the moment when Timothy receives salvation and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the one that he talks about in 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 is a little bit different. 
He says, don't neglect the gift that was given to you, not just the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the gift of shepherding and leadership that was given to you by the acknowledgement of the elders that you were the one who was going to lead them. Now, here's what's interesting. Every one of you in this room leads someone. Every one of you in this room has someone in your life where you are their shepherd, where you are the one who is pointing them and leading them towards the Lord, and you are one who God has commissioned to take care of that person. In fact, it says in Genesis that you are your brother or your sister's keeper, right? Uh, This is somebody that you are responsible for, that their life and your life, uh, you are one who has been commissioned as a shepherd over them. Look at what it says. It says, do not neglect your gift, which is given to you through prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He says, be diligent in these matters and give yourself wholly to them. Underline, give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may what? May see your progress. Underline that word see there. Now watch your life and doctrine closely. Underline that word watch there again. Watch your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Underline and highlight, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The idea here is not that you could save anyone. Only Jesus can do that through his shed blood. But the idea is that you would lead them towards salvation. When they see your life, they would see one that is worthy of the calling that God has placed on you. There are certain people in your life, for better or worse, that God has placed you as a shepherd next to them or near them, and you are responsible for them. Sometimes it's people that you share blood in your veins. It's your family. Sometimes you share a connection because they are next to you in the cubicle at work. Sometimes they're the townhome next to your townhome. Sometimes they're across the hall from you in your apartment complex. But these are people that the Lord has placed you as a shepherd in their lives. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? A shepherd's duty is to lead, feed, and protect the sheep. A shepherd's duty is to lead, feed, and protect the sheep. There are certain people in our lives, and we are called to take care of them. Now, just for the record, in a study about neglect, it can be real easy to look at society at large or to look at someone in your life that neglected you or who wasn't there for you when they should have been. I want us today to look in the mirror on this. Is there someone in your life that God has placed under your care that you are drifting towards that attitude of neglect today. Maybe, just maybe, the Spirit is stirring in you heavily today that you need to check up on somebody. And that's been my prayer going into this Sunday, that if you are supposed to check up on somebody, that the Spirit would stir you to do so. So back in the day, I worked at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster. Okay, for those of you playing waterfront bingo at home, all right, bingo, all right, there you go. I marked that off on the card. There is floating around a waterfront bingo card somewhere. Uh, I am both, uh, uh, I both love it and uh, am appalled by it, just so you know, and no, I'm just kidding, just a fun deal, no waterfront drinking games. I don't allow those, all right? So anyway, I'm just saying, uh, but we're out, for those of you looking for the Red Lobster mention, there it is, okay? Um, when you wait tables, any of you ever waited tables before? There is a special relationship that you have with the table that you're waiting on. And here's the deal. Whether the people are reasonable or unreasonable, you are tied together. You get assigned to wait on that table. You don't get to pick the ones that you wait on. You're assigned to them. And then in that, you shepherd the table. Take the orders, you bring the food, and then sometimes uh, they're reasonable, sometimes they're unreasonable. I can tell you this. When I did not treat a table well, I rarely got a good tip from that table. 
There were times where I'd work really hard at the table and not get a good tip, but very rarely did I not do well and they gave me a, high, and they gave me a decent tip. There's a relationship that takes place there. One guy in particular, I'll never forget, he vocalized it. He said, here's the deal. He said, if my Dr. Pepper goes below half, he said, so does your tip. That's what he told me right up front. My Dr. Pepper goes below half, so does your tip. So um, I appreciated him at least telling me the parameters of our relationship, okay? And then after that, I made a little decision. I went, you know what? I'm going to get him a whole bunch of Dr. Pepper. And so I remember I went back. I filled up three glasses of Dr. Pepper. The manager goes, what are you doing? I go, just trust me on this. One. It'll be a way better experience for everybody. Filled up the three glasses, set them on the table, lined them up for him like shots. And then all of a sudden, and he looked and he goes, you know, dude, we're going to be all right. And I said, I think we are too. Glup, glup, glup. He dumped him. And I said, he goes, time to get another one. I said, no problem. Ran back and got him some more. Kept refilling those drinks. At the end of that shift, he left me 11% in tip. All right? 11%. I can guarantee it had been zero if I hadn't set those three drinks on the table. Now listen, a shepherd's duty, there are people that you are tied to. And your goal is not to go, well, Lord, I wash my hands of the situation. If he has given you someone to shepherd, Paul says they watch your progress, they watch your life. He says, and from there, as you are pursuing salvation, then your hearers also pursue it as well. You never know what the Lord is doing in someone else's life. So here's our big million dollar question today. How do we keep from neglecting those that God has given us to shepherd? How do we keep from neglecting those that God has given us to shepherd. Remember, this is not a preacher's message. This is for all of us, every one of us, to look in the mirror and figure out, is there someone that we need to check up on? Now flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 20 through 22, the verses that we studied in depth last week, where we'll jump back into the story of Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom, uh, and we'll jump back in. But we're going to look specifically at how David is neglectful as the person in leadership, as the lead shepherd in his family, and the lead shepherd in his Israel, we get to look at specifically how he is neglectful in this, and hopefully it'll stir your heart as you look in the mirror, and maybe the Lord will speak to you today. You ready for this? 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, verses 20 through 22. It says, so her brother, Tamar's brother Absalom, said to her, has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Tamar lived in her brother's house, a desolate woman. Verse 21 is David's response. When the king heard all this, he was furious. Period. End of thought. End of action. It's one of the saddest verses here in scripture because David should have done something. He was stirred, furious, and emotional, and he should have done something to defend his daughter, Tamar, uh, from, Ab from Amnon and the awful things uh, that he had done. He also should have addressed Absalom and the anger and the desire for revenge that he had in his life. And instead, David is furious, but he does absolutely nothing. It is the picture of neglect. So verse 22 happens afterwards. So Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad, but he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. If you're taking notes, how do we keep from neglecting those that God has given us to shepherd? Number one, we have to address uncomfortable truth. We have to address uncomfortable truth. Remember, this is not society. This is not your neighbor or your family. We're looking in the mirror on this one. You ever uh, had someone invite you to their family gathering and you're the outsider 
and you get invited in as the ins- you get invited in by an insider, and you go to that family gathering, and then there is a glaring problem that you see immediately in that person's family. I mean, a, just a major issue. And then you go to the person that you're with, and you go, "Am I seeing this correctly? Is this problem prevalent with you guys?" And then, have you ever had this before? They look at you and they go, "Yes, but we don't speak of it." Right? You had one of those before. In fact, that could probably be several of our families also, not just when we're the outsider. But if you've been the one to walk in on it, if you're the outsider that's come in and they tell you, "Yes, that's a clear problem, but we don't speak of it," you don't need to be the one that goes. Pastor Zach told me we're having this discussion at Family Reunion 2020. All right, 2022. I realize that you guys are all family, but I'm going to set you free and have this discussion. Please don't do that, all right? It's not your place. But when that situation happens, glaring issue, but we don't talk about it. We don't bring it up. It's something that we put off to the side, that we compartmentalize and put by the wayside. As the outsider, you spot it immediately. Took a leadership class one time, and they called it carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is when you walk into a situation and you smell it immediately as an outsider. But after you've sat in it for long enough, You forget that it's there. It's slowly killing you, but you forget that it's even there. I want to encourage you, when you are the shepherd and you feel that stirring, to put it away, to compartmentalize it and not deal with it, you are being a poor steward in the position that God has given you. Neglect Neglect refuses to to address the uncomfortable truth. I'm going to give you a long statement here, but it's a good one. Are you ready? God forgets our sin... Because it is forgiven through the precious blood of Jesus, not because he is in denial or avoiding the topic. Let me say that again. God forgets our sin because it is forgiven through the precious blood of Jesus, not because he is in denial or avoiding the topic. When it says that our God forgives our sin and he forgets it and throws it as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more, you have to remember forgiveness first, forgetting second. It has to be, this term that we have in theology, it has to be atoned for. When a sin takes place, it must be atoned for. Forgiveness must take place. And then God is able to throw it away as far as the, as the east is from the west and remember it no more. Neglect happens when we are stirred, when we are furious, when we are emotional because injustice has happened, and yet we choose to do nothing. We must address the uncomfortable truth. So I told you last week, my wife and I got a new house, and a new-to-us house, and this house has a yard. For the first time in eight years, I have a yard. I had not had to mow in eight years. It was glorious, all right, but now I've got this big front yard that I have to mow. And so um, it had been a while since, again, we kind of noticed the yard situation. And so um, here's what happened this week. Had all that rain, sun started shining, and then all of a sudden, I came home from work, and I noticed... The neighbors on my right and our left had mowed their yard, and mine was overgrown, and there was about a six-inch difference between their yard and our yard. And I remember driving past it, and it was like, oh, my goodness, I bet our neighbors hate us, right? Because they've got to see. I got to see my property line for the first time, you know, because they, they mowed it on both sides. You could see it. And so I, I'm looking at this situation, and I told Autumn. Autumn was like, what are you going to do? Well, the last thing you want to do after working all day is mow the stinking yard, right? Especially when you hadn't mowed one in eight years. And so I'm sitting there, and I was like, we got to mow the yard, 
Autumn goes, absolutely, or they're going to think we're the worst neighbors ever. We got to get the yard mode. So again, they had set the example, 1 Timothy 4, and then after they set the example of righteousness, it took me three hours to mow that yard three hours front and back to get this thing done. I got it finished. My kids were cheering me on the whole time. It was glorious. Can I tell you what happened next? Across the street were our other neighbors and they had not mowed their yard. But while I was outside mowing my yard, they look out the windows and you can see them. Oh, crud. I got to mow my yard now too. Right? Righteousness begets righteousness begets righteousness. Praise God, we don't have an HOA in this area. Hallelujah. All right. And so, uh, because of that, we all just try to be good neighbors for one another. It's not anything where we're putting like a note on somebody's door, right? Uh, again, address the uncomfortable truth, and then it stirs righteousness all around you to your right, to your left, and to the other side of the street as well. Jesus addresses it this way Save your spot in 2 Samuel. And flip over to John chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 19. John chapter 21. You want to talk about uh, an issue of neglect, and you want to talk about, again, Jesus showing uh, perfect leadership. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. Man, Peter has felt like he has just absolutely messed up. Jesus looks at him and says, now you're Simon, but you will be Peter. You will be the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. He has just given this incredible vision ministry-wise for Peter's life. And do you remember what happens next? After that, Peter leads in the discipleship group. He steps up. He tries to do the right thing. But then he denies Jesus three times on the way to the cross. In a story that would be repeated between then and eternity... Uh, as an example, again, of, of really doing the wrong thing. So Peter does what any one of us would do. Rather than address it, they ask Peter, what are you going to do now? You denied Jesus. What are you going to do now? He called you the rock, and now what are you going to do? And Peter comes back in John 21, and he goes, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back and do what I used to do. In fact, don't miss this. He goes, well, I guess I blew my shot at ministry guess I blew my shot at being a good shepherd. I'm just going to go make money, and then you guys can fulfill the calling, and I'll just do what I do best. I'll just catch fish, make money, and I'll fund the ministry that you guys are going to do. I blew my shot. I messed up, and so there's nothing that I can do moving forward. Well, praise God. Jesus addresses that uncomfortable truth that has wickedly been planted into Peter's heart. Look at John chapter 21, verse 15. Jesus shows up in the middle of this moment uh, where Peter and the, uh, the men are on the boat. It says that the, Jesus then calls out, tells them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, boat symbolic of uh, the calling of the first disciples in Luke chapter 5. And then there's this miraculous catch of fish. Well, Jesus then is on the side. He's cooking over hot coals uh, this meal of fish uh, for, the, uh, for the men. And Peter is trying to figure out how G he and Jesus are supposed to move forward in their friendship, in their calling, after Peter's messed up. And here's Jesus in the calling again. Look at what it says, John 21, verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Underline these. One of the cool things about Greek, ancient Greek shows you specifically what an article is pointing back to. Do you know what these were in this passage? The fish. He looks at Simon, and I love it that he doesn't call him Peter to start off. He goes, you're not quite rock yet. He says, Simon, son of John, clearly you've decided you won't be a fisherman instead of a minister. He says, Simon, 
do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than making money? Do you love me more than the life that you had before you ever knew me? Look at what he says to that. It says, yes, Lord. He said, you know I love you. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. He says, be a shepherd. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. Then be a good shepherd. Don't neglect the people I've put under your care. It says the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Then step up and be a shepherd. Then step up and take care of these people that I've placed under your care. If you truly love me, then it's time for you to get back in the game. It begs the question, do you need to have a tough conversation with someone? Do you need to have a tough conversation with someone? Don't just sit around and be like, you know what? We don't speak of it in our friend group. We don't speak of it at the office. We don't speak of it in our family. We don't speak of it in our friend group. We just put that in the compartment and we place it by the wayside. If you are the shepherd in that group, I want to encourage you to step up and have that tough conversation. Now flip back over to 2 Samuel 13 and let's see what happens next in our story with David, with Absalom and the Tamar and Amnon situation. 2 Samuel 13 verses 23 through, 24, 23 through 25. It says, two years later, underline and highlight two years later, David knows that he's supposed to do something. He is furious. He is stirred because of the wickedness of Amnon. He needs to punish him, and he needs to restore Absalom and Tamar. But instead, he'd sit for two stinking years. This wasn't weeks. This wasn't months. This was years. It says, two years later, when Absalom's sheep shears were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. And Absalom went to the king and said, your servant has had shears come. Will the king and his officials please join me? Now look at this. No, my son, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but he gave him his blessing. Stop right there for just a minute. Do you remember the occupation that David had before he went on the run from Saul? He was a shepherd. He understood that this day of sheep shearing was a really big deal. Just like when I talk about Red Lobster to some of you other people who've waited tables before, we are brothers and sisters through that occupation. We understand one another. He talks as Absalom reaches out to him. He says, it's the big sheep shearing day. You were a shepherd yourself. You were the one who had to take care of this area in your family. It's a big day, and I need you to come out here along with our entire family. And David says something that's a good thing here. He goes, son, I'm the king. He goes, I got to bring the whole secret service with me if I come to do this. He goes, it'll be very, very expensive. It will be a burden to you to have to pay for all the secret service to come out. And Absalom, because revenge has been stirring in his head for two years, and on this moment with the king's sons coming, I'm telling you, it's this big moment, but he's asking David, be the guardrails for me because I've been planning something awful. One of the scholars said it's possible that Absalom was going to plan a coup, kill all of the king's sons, 
and David and assume the throne himself in this circumstance. Can I tell you why I don't think that's what happened? Because at the end of this passage, we're going to read in a little bit, he has the chance to kill all the king's sons and he doesn't do it. He just kills Amnon. He is asking David, his father, to step up and to help him. And David looks and he goes, it'll just be too much of a burden. I don't think I do this one. Absalom, appreciate the offer. If you're taking notes, write this down. And for some of you who have moved to D.C. from some other place, this might be a heavy word from God for you today. Are you ready for this? How do we keep from neglecting those God has given us to shepherd? Number one, address uncomfortable truth. And number two, be present on important days. Be present on important days. If you have moved here from somewhere else, your family is so proud that you are getting to do the work that you are doing up here. But listen to me. But for you to act like they don't exist infuriates them. For you to act like their big days are not big days for you, they know you can't come to little Cindy's second birthday party. They know that. They know you got stuff to do. They know that important things are going on. But there are some big days, and some of them are days you can circle on the calendar and you can plan towards. And listen to me, and some are when that Holy Spirit kicks you in the gut and a drive to Sonic to get a cherry lime made is a very important visit. And a drive in so that you can spend time together is a very important visit. A time that you find out they're having a surgery is a very important visit. If you're taking notes, we say this with our waterfront leadership all the time. Are you ready? You can't lead if you're not around. Write that down. You can't lead if you're not around. You'd say, but Zach, we're adults. We got our own things going on. If there is someone the Lord has given you to shepherd, if an important day comes up, it doesn't have to be every specific, it doesn't have to be every day, it doesn't have to be every moment, it doesn't have to be little Cindy's second, third, and fourth birthday. I'm just telling you, if it's a big day, the Spirit kicks you, obey the Spirit promptly, and find a way to go. Can I tell you something interesting about Autumn? I made the commitment to her when she got pregnant with Lulu, our first child, I made the commitment to her. I said, you know, I can see it's important to you. I'm going to try to the best of my abilities to not miss a single OB visit as we get ready to have the baby. And can I tell you what was interesting? It was hard, especially with Lulu. Lulu, at the end, there were three months where we had to go twice a week to check up on Lulu because she was having trouble breathing. And so because of that, I'm telling you, it was a heavy, heavy deal. But we had one specific day where they couldn't find the heartbeat. And on that day, I needed to be present. Praise God, they found it after about an hour. But I'm telling you, that day was so stinking heavy for her. And I needed to be there. Can I tell you what else is interesting? My wife would be more okay with me missing Christmas than one of those OB visits. I'm just being honest. She would have been more okay with me missing Christmas or Thanksgiving than one of those OB visits. Doesn't mean she doesn't want me around on those holidays. But for her specifically, that's not everyone, but that was for her. Those days were that stinking important. You can't lead if you're not around, and you got to be present on those important days. I've told you this story before, but it just fits so perfectly here. My dad was gone a whole bunch, traveled and preached, and I had one day in particular, I'd been dating someone for three and a half years. First holiday I ever spent away from my family and uh, went to a 
see her family in Tulsa had a really bad experience. And I had to work at Red Lobster the next day. Nobody wants to work day after Christmas waiting tables, especially in a college town like Stillwater. So I drive back to Stillwater, make that lonely drive, and I can feel it in my spirit. We're about to break up. I feel like the Lord has called me at that point. I had prayed, Lord, don't let me eat or sleep till I do the right thing. And I was miserable. Three and a half years of relationship, and the Lord was bringing it to an end. And so I walk up to the table. I'm at the 11 o'clock shift on the day after Christmas, and I walk up to the first table, and I burst into tears. Okay, That had never happened to me before. Over three years of working at Red Lobster at that point. And I walk over, uh, the head manager, a guy named Robert Harrington, comes up, and he goes, Zach, are you okay? He goes, you're never like this. I tell him just a little bit of what happens, and he goes, dude, you need to go home. I said, but you're shorthanded today. He goes, I know. He said, we'll figure it out. He said, you need to go home. Day after Christmas, his kindness, uh, it's still dumbfounded. That was, that was a very nice thing. So I walk out to my car, won't start. I mean, it's just salt on wound. You want to talk about the Lord stirring something? I was just like, come on, Lord, please, please. And the car wouldn't start. So college town, day after Christmas, everybody I know is working at Red Lobster that day, all right? And everybody else is out of town and with family. And I'm sitting there like, well, what am I supposed to do? How is this supposed to come together? And I pull out my cell phone and I scroll down to my dad's number. I click the number. Dad goes, hey, son. He goes, I thought you were working today. I said, I, I am, but I had a tough go. Can you come pick me up? That's what I said to him. He's in Dallas, and I'm in Stillwater four hours away. And I go, can you come pick me up? And he goes, son, you're four hours away. It's the day after Christmas. And I turn into a toddler, and I go, you were never there for me. You never took care of me. I go, if you ever loved me, you would try to figure out a way to come and to do this. And to my dad's credit, with me acting like a stinking toddler, he goes, okay, I'll see you in four hours. <laughs> Hangs up the phone. This was back when there were smoking sections in restaurants. I just sat in the back of that smoking section and took it all in that day, all right? <laughs> Four hours I waited. He pulls up, loads me into the car, and says, we got four hours to talk about this. Drives me all the way back to Dallas. We work through the issues. I come to the realization that we're supposed to break up and that I'm the one who has to do it. And then the next day, he drives me all the way back. Drops me off and then drives all the way back. He put 16 hours on the road. Now, did he need to do that every day? No. But this day was a special day. And I will be forever grateful. My life is different because he made that 16-hour drive. There are some of you, and the Lord has stirred in your gut to go the distance to do whatever it takes to make sure you are present. They know you can't be at everything. But on those special days, and sometimes it's a day you can circle on the calendar, you can plan towards it, you can get the cheapest flight, and you can rent the car properly. I mean, it all comes together the right way, but listen to me. But sometimes it's a phone call in the middle of the afternoon where you just happen to have just enough time, and you make the drive and you do it anyway. When we do that, we exhibit the heart of Almighty God. Save your spot and flip over to Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 3. 
Psalm 46, the psalmist here, who many don't believe is David. The psalmist here in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist tells us the heart of God. Listen to this. This is so powerful, and it's the example for how we shepherds should behave as well. Psalm 46, 1, it says, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Underline and highlight ever-present in times of trouble. He's there for us on our darkest days. Look at verse 2. It says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. He says, it doesn't matter if the earth gives way by earthquake. It doesn't matter if we feel like everything around us is sinking it doesn't matter if a tidal wave is going to smack us in the face time after time. If God is with us, he is our refuge and he is ever present in our time of difficulty. Hallelujah and amen. The people under your care need to know that, that the Lord is with them, but you, his servant, are also alongside them for those times of great difficulty. They know you can't be there all the time, but on important days, David should have gone to the sheep shearing festival. The king doesn't typically go, but he should have stinking gone. It begs the question, do you need to make room in your schedule? Do you need to make room in your schedule? Is there something you need to circle on the calendar and get to? Now, just for the record, some of you are like, yep, I need to go tell my boss I'm quitting and going home. That's not what Pastor Zach said today. (laughs) In fact, if you're going into your boss every single week and asking for help, asking for leeway, that's not a good place to be either. For some of you, you have been consistent, you have been diligent. And when the Spirit stirs on one of those, I've got to go right now moments, when you look your boss in the eye and you go, I'm supposed to do this, whether they're a believer in Jesus Christ or not, they'll look back at you and go, you never ask for things like this. I'll figure it out. You've been good to us. We'll figure out a way to be good to you. In fact, sometimes they'll come back and say, if you can do it in this box, we can make it happen. But they see the fire in your eyes. And then all of a sudden, just like we read about in 1 Timothy 4, they come alongside and become part of your journey. They are watching your progress, and you may just be leading them to heaven. Flip open to 2 Samuel, and we'll finish up this passage. You ready? Now 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 26 and 27. It says, then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, "Uh, why should Amnon go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Now stop right there for just a minute. Amnon has raped his sister and the king has done nothing about it as a father and as a magistrate. And all of a sudden, David catches it. I'm not coming, but you're really urging for Amnon to come. And what does David do? David does, again, the definition of neglect. He goes, I don't want to argue. Whatever. Amnon can show up. David knows this is a bad idea. Verse 21, he was furious at what had happened. He was stirred, and yet he allows it to happen. Are you ready for this? How do we keep from neglecting those that God has given us to shepherd? Number one, address uncomfortable truth. Number two, be present on important days. And number three, follow up on strange interactions. Follow up on strange interactions. In this circumstance, there is no situation where David didn't realize something was going on. He even asks, why should he go with you? 
Absalom urges but doesn't give a good reason, and David just goes, fine, whatever, deal with it. I'm a king. I got other things going on. One last little quote here for you. Often the deepest hurts and the vilest wickedness in this world could have been avoided by simply taking a second look at something that seemed off. He said it again. Often the deepest hurts and the vilest wickedness in this world could have been avoided by simply taking a second look at something that seemed off. Here at our church, we believe that that moment that you realize something is off, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that the voice of the Holy Spirit, the counselor as Jesus calls him, our advocate, that it stirs within you, and then you know you're supposed to follow up. Not that you're supposed to call the police immediately, not that you're supposed to blow the situation up, but that you truly are called to follow up. That you're called to ask a few more questions, figure out the situation, and if you don't feel easy about it, then you probably shouldn't do it. Save your spot there in 2 Samuel and flip over to John chapter 14, and Jesus talks about how the Spirit, how this counselor works. John 14. And we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Here's what Jesus says. John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Some say advocate, but uh, I love the translation that has the capital C counselor. It is specifically the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. Underline the world cannot accept him. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives within you. And will be with you. The idea here is a situation where you may go to outsiders and say. Something happened here. I don't understand it. And they look at you and they go. I don't have the same gut feeling that you have. The world does not understand it. But you understand it. Why? Because he lives within you. Because the spirit is kicking. That you are the one who is supposed to specifically do something in this circumstance. And if you don't, there could be dire consequences. I didn't put this in your notes, but you can write this down. Obey the Spirit promptly. Obey the Spirit promptly. If the Spirit kicks that you are supposed to follow up with a weird conversation, do it quickly because you never know what's happening on the other side. One last little story. Um, little ministry secret for us. My wife and I share a Facebook page, okay? But we also share every email. You just need to know. You message me, she's getting it. You message her, I'm getting it. Can I tell you why? Because we love one another. And for us, our relationship with each other is way more important than my position as the pastor of the church. I love you guys, but not as much as I love my wife. Okay, I love you dearly, but I'm not ever going to sacrifice that, and I'll be unapologetic about that. It also is helpful because I go to bed at about 11 o'clock at night, and my wife gets up at 4.45 in the morning, all right? It means that if there is some crazy weird email that comes in, and I get some, okay, and some crazy weird email comes in late at night, that she is the one who catches it usually at 4.45 in the morning when she wakes up. And one time, at the very beginning of our ministry career, one of my oldest, dearest friends made a mistake, took a whole bunch of pills, and then sent a note at around 4 a.m. Uh, that he was taking his life. Autumn catches it, wakes me up. She said, do you think someone else has already caught this? And I said, we can't take a chance. Let's call immediately. We had his address. We called. 
We have paramedics sent over to his house. They pump his stomach and praise God he was able to stay alive that day. Um, just was amazing the way the Lord put it together. She caught it and she made the move on it. We had another situation that would happen when my dad and I were serving together in And there was a woman who sent an email about, again, 4 o'clock in the morning, sent an email that was all over the place. It didn't say specifically that they were thinking about taking their life, but it was just all over the place. It was not like her, and it was just all over the place. And I remember Autumn wakes me up, and she goes, I just have a feeling in my gut that something is off here. I read it myself, and I went, I think she might be trying to take her life, that this might be just a last gasp. And so my dad was the pastor. I wake him up, and it was a holiday week. I think it was around Thanksgiving. I go over to him, and I just said, hey, I think we need to call the police right now, and I think we need to figure it out. And Dad stopped, and he said, I don't have the same gut kick that you do. He said, but I can see in your eyes that this is important to you. He said, let's make the call, and then let's drive over there, and let's check on them. So we call. We head over, and sure enough, uh, this individual had had access to some different uh, medicines, and was hooked up to an IV in their house and was trying to figure out a way to assist in their own suicide. And so um, we then make the move. The paramedics come in, take care of the situation. And she would say later, how in the world did you know to come over here when I had sent that crazy message? And I said, we could just feel it. Autumn and I just felt the kick. Dad affirmed it. And then I'm telling you, she was able to stay alive because of that. I wish I could tell you, that I did it right every time those ways. There's some of you in here, and you do live with regret. You know what you do if that's you? You repent, you beg God for grace and mercy, and then you decide right here, right now, that it will not ever happen again on your watch. Amen? Ask for forgiveness. Allow him to restore you, and then make the decision, never stinking again. If the Spirit kicks, obey the Spirit promptly. So it begs our most important question today. You ready? Has God put someone on your heart? Has God put someone on your heart today? As you hear this random message from a random pastor today speaking out to you, is there some person that God has put on your heart for a follow-up conversation so that you can check and see how they are? Not just checking in, but to figure out if something they've said specifically that was a little off, you do the follow-up and figure out where they're at. Again, really could be a powerful moment for you. But David doesn't do that. And we get our final verses today, 2 Samuel 13, 28 and 29. You ready? It says, So Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon's in high spirits from drinking wine... And I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. Some of you who have studied the book of Joshua before, he almost steals the words of Joshua to do this vile, awful thing. It says, so Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. And then look at this. And then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. Underline mounted their mules. little fun little story here. So it was illegal to breed mules in Israel. It was a crossbreeding of two animals. So can I tell you what was interesting about this? The king's family probably should have been the ones who bought American, who bought Israeli, right, more than anybody. But the mule in Israel was like a foreign vehicle. The picture here 
is that they load up in the motorcade and they all flee and go home. Don't miss this. David, in his neglect, allowed an opportunity where if Absalom had wanted to, he could have killed David's entire family in wedding and established himself as the ruler in Israel. David's neglect, David's neglect nearly took down his entire legacy and family. For you, this cannot be your story or my story. If the spirit kicks, we as disciples must listen. Amen? I love you guys. I can't help but wonder if somebody's not here today where this message again was very specifically for you because there's somebody that you need to reach out to. Let's bow our heads for prayer.